Welcome to Dig In, the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights. Each week, Jess Gedeke chats with world-class brand professionals to bring you the story behind the story of some of the most breakthrough innovations, marketing tactics, and campaigns. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Dig In podcast. I am Jess Gedeke, CRO at Dig Insights, and I am joined today by a, another longtime friend and colleague of, of mine that I'm lucky to have in my stratosphere. So today I'm joined by Suda Ranganathan, who is the Director of Product and Field Marketing at LinkedIn. I'm excited for multiple reasons, but one is that today we get to talk about innovation from more of the human side of things, and I'm really thrilled about that. Every time I talk to Suda, I learn something and I am enthralled by what the wisdom she is sharing. So I will try to keep up interviewing her, but really I'm just going to be learning and listening uh, just like the audience. So Suda, thank you for being here. So thrilled to have you. Um, I'd love for you to start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and about your background. Yeah. And before I do that, Jess, I'm equally lucky to have you in my stratosphere. Thank you for inviting me to be here for this amazing conversation. So a little bit about me, I currently work at LinkedIn. As you said earlier, I'm the director of product and field marketing for a bunch of really interesting business lines at LinkedIn. Um, before that, I spent about seven years in CPG at Procter & Gamble. I talk about that being where I learned everything I know about marketing, business acumen, and influence today. And then in between, I did stints at a firm named Afinova, which is just where you and I met each other. And then at uh, PayPal, very briefly in the financial tech industry. So this is all to say my life and my career have spanned multiple continents. You know, I started in Asia, moved to North America, multiple industries. I started in CPG. I've ended up in tech now. And the two things that have stayed constant through all of those is a real love for marketing, which is really how do you get people to think, feel and do what you want them to do. And another one is a real passion for developing and bringing out the best in teams. So how do you get people to perform at their very best, to stay engaged and happy, uh, and to help them keep growing and stretching themselves at work? So I'd say that is me in a nutshell. Today at LinkedIn, yesterday at PNG, uh, a long career, 18 plus years, and the common themes are really marketing and talent development. It's an excellent set of common themes and have brought you to who you are today. So what do you love about what you do? Can you boil it down to sort of one central idea? What I do right now, because I work in the talent solutions business at LinkedIn, is I help a lot of companies out there hire really great talent and develop that talent into their highest potential. It's as simple as that. Uh, my team's specific focus is on doing that for companies that are in specific industries like search and staffing, healthcare, government, higher education. But in a in a nutshell, we help them hire great talent and develop them to their highest potential. Kind of a big deal. So, <laughs> so I love that. I can't wait to dig into that. Speaking of which, let's dig in now. So um, our listeners, they crave inspiration from other leaders. And the best way I believe to inspire is to tell a story. So um, I'd love to hear your story. You've developed a really compelling framework for what you call architecting influence. And I know this has been really influential to a lot of people and a lot of organizations. So I'd love to hear that story. How did it originate? What, what inspired this idea? To explain the story, I'll start by explaining that <clears throat> depending on the organization you work for, there is a center of decision-making. So if you think of a company as concentric circles, at the very center, usually there's a team or a function that is on point to make a lot of the decisions. 
they have the highest power and they have the highest responsibility. And then when you go outwards from that concentric circle, you get to functions that have less and less decision-making power, but have more and more influence over that decision. And I say this because I started my career in CPG, and at the very outset, it was clear that marketing held all of the decision-making power. What you call brand managers in CPG manage the PNL; they're responsible for revenue growth, and they sit at the center of those concentric circles. And the function that I was in, which is consumer market knowledge, but basically it's market research or consumer insights at PNG, sits in just a circle that is a little bit outside of marketing. Meaning we don't make a lot of those decisions. But we have access to consumer insight, market intelligence, and competitive intelligence that directly influences those decisions. And it became very evident very quickly that for us to be really good at our job as market researchers, we didn't just need to excel at the craft of market research. We needed to excel at the art and craft of influencing our stakeholders in marketing to make different decisions based on the intelligence that we were bringing them. And that's really where the difference lay between successful insights folks and, and average insights folks. So early in my career, this notion of influence is really important. And in fact, influences more than half of your job was deeply cemented in my psyche. And then as I left PNG and I moved to LinkedIn later in my career, I noticed that no matter what the industry, what the company, researchers are still grappling with how to architect influence with their marketing partners. Now, this problem of influence becomes multiplied many fold in technology because the center of decision making is usually either product or sales or a combination of the two. So marketing now sits in, in a circle that's a little bit outside. And so market research sits even further out from the decision making. And it just became so, so obvious that the importance of influence is compounded and the difficulty of influencing successfully is also compounded when you work in market research in technology. So that is the genesis of why I felt like we need to talk about influence more because it's just such an important skill and because you're that much further away from decision making. But it also became clear to me that you can talk about why it should be done and what it is all you want. But unless you can codify the how you do this into a step by step framework, young researchers in particular, so folks that are really junior in their roles, are going to have a really hard time putting it into action. And so that's kind of the story behind how I came up with what I call the architecting influence framework. And ever since then, I've noticed that it's not just useful to market researchers, it's also useful to product marketers because they are trying to influence product and sales. And so ever since then, I've now turned it into a framework that I have facilitated in workshops at the Product Marketing Alliance, talked about it in other podcasts, et cetera. But that's kind of the story of how that brainchild came to be. Yeah. And so many of our listeners are in insights and I'm sure that they grapple with that very challenge. Um, so I'm wondering, could you tell us more as either you were developing that framework or even in your career as an insights professional, what are some of those barriers that you would face? You know, like it's, you've got, you've got this data, you've got this information, but trying to bring it to bear and bring it to the right stakeholders so they use it in the right way. What are some of the most common challenges outside of the concentric circle issue, which is, is a very clear issue? So one of the biggest challenges is <clears throat> when we're in insights, we can get somewhat obsessed with the shininess of the intelligence we are uncovering from our customers. And because we're so close to it, we want to package it all up really beautifully and we want to turn it into a story that we can tell our stakeholders. 
And just like with any marketing where you get really attached to your product or brand and you want to sell it to your audience, we forget that we need to start with where is our audience right now? So the number one step that I use in my architecting influence framework is what I call the audience understanding. So map out who your audience is, who's the decision maker, who are the allies and the influencers that they listen to, that they are going to make the decision based on advice from. And then understand what their psychological state is. What I mean by that is you are trying to influence a specific decision. You want them to do something different than what they're doing today. Try and understand what is the psychological gap between this new recommendation you're about to make and where their headspace is right now. The larger that psychological gap, the more priming and pre-wiring you're going to have to do with the people that surround them before you actually get to that final meeting where you're trying to make your recommendation. So number one barrier, not knowing who our audience is or not thinking about who our audience is. Number two barrier, not being crisp on what is the exact decision we are trying to influence this audience to make differently. Number three barrier, not realizing that um, decisions are often made based on the heart and the gut, not just based on the head. And so anchoring ourselves very deeply in what's the data I want to share versus asking what's the emotional psychological gap between what they believe and what I want them to believe. And then I would say barrier number four is I, I don't think we put as much time and effort into the pre-wiring and the priming as we should. I'd say that in the average life cycle of recommendations, we spend 90% of our time perfecting the deck that contains the recommendation and 10% of our time trying to land the recommendation. When in fact, we should, we should be spending about 50% of our time trying to pre-wire that recommendation through the system, trying to get inputs from people to refine and make it better. Uh, basically making your baby everybody else's baby so everybody feels skin in the game. That way, when you get to that final meeting, it's really just to tick the box exercise because pretty much everyone is already on board. Seen all of those kind of barriers throughout my career as an insights professional, but one that really rings true to me, you know that I've got background with, with package design research. And I don't know, I think there's nothing more emotional than when people are assessing art. And uh, because you either like it or you don't, and you have opinions and there's nothing scientific about it in a lot of ways. And there's always an internal favorite by the senior stakeholder. There just always, always is. So those were the ones that I found we had to do the most pre-wiring as you're, as you're talking about and, and making sure that they, um, you know, they could accept the decision when it, or the, the, the data that would help them make the decision. Um, but uh, I, I think that's one that's, that has always happened to me in probably in your time in P&G, you saw that or at Afanova, right? Like design decisions are just fraught with. They really are. And Jess, you're, you're making such a great point. It's reminding me not just of designs that leaders got attached to, but also concept, concept ideas on paper. Leaders always have an internal favorite and you're either too scared to ask them so you avoid it. Or you're brave enough to confront it and understand what it is so you can address it head on. And in fact, you know, sometimes this wise decision is to realize they've already made up their mind and no amount of research will change it. So why bother spending all that time energy doing the research? You, you could be solving a different business problem with that energy. Yeah, I think that's very true. So this architecting influence framework uh, how did you know when it was a success? You, you've shared it with quite a few people. And when did you know it was really ringing true? 
So I started this when I was at LinkedIn on the market research team and we were talking about, hey, how, how do we do this? And I said, hey, why don't I try and come up with some content to help with this, right? And when I put it down on paper, two things became very clear. There is, um, how do you make a project land really influentially? So how do you make recommendations as influential as possible? And then there was this other slice of it, which is how do you become influential as a person and professional? So they're kind of two different things, right? Because the second is more of an ongoing exercise of building your reputation and skill set with influence. And the former is on a project by project basis. I remember the first time that we kind of landed that with people, the response was very much like, ah, I, I, I have always known this is what it took, but no one's ever distilled it into a really simple framework where I can literally go um, treat it as a check the box exercise. And if I do all of these things, I know I will have set myself up for influence success. So that early feedback was really useful in understanding that it really resonated. Uh, I, I got a lot of feedback that it still felt very uh, me teaching and people not being able to apply. And so over time, in the last few years, I've turned it into more of a workshop style exercise where we take each, each phase of the framework and we break it down into an application exercise. And either we do Q&A and discussion or teams break out at a table and they try and apply it to a real world situation. And then I got feedback that that is incredibly useful. Because it's one thing to learn and download what you're saying, but it's another thing then to be able to talk back and ask questions and talk about the real challenges of making some of these things happen. So over time, I feel like I've learned a lot and I've refined the framework from more of a teach-based module to more of a cohort-based learning workshop. And along the way, all of that, that feedback, which basically says, hey, I think this is going to set me up for success. I'm suddenly able to see why my recommendation didn't land previously, and now I know what to do differently. That has been the feedback I needed to understand that it resonates and it's it's having an impact. An incredible impact because you think about taking, you know, insights and I'm focusing on insights professionals, but insights professionals that are great at their craft, but have not yet been given that opportunity to sort of supercharge and become, you know, the, the star. That's just so incredible that you're helping them along that that journey. So good for you. And so I guess what would you say is your biggest takeaway from that experience? I'm realizing that what started as a framework for market researchers, I have now I have now realized it works for any function that does not sit at the very center of that circle because to get their job done, they need to know how to influence the person sitting at the center of the circle. And so I've now recently reapplied it over the last three years to product marketing. And it just has so much more broad applicability because if you think about it, most functions are not decision-making functions. They are influence functions. So that's been my biggest lesson is it started in market research, but it has applicability to any function that sits in a role of influence without uh, decision making. Yeah, well, that's incredible. And like I've told you, I, I would definitely like to sit in on one of those workshops and, and hope to be the, the beneficiary of your, your wisdom. But that's fantastic. So I'd love to turn to your role as a leader in the industry because you are one. You are um, someone that is a, a thought leader and uh, you're always sharing very thought-provoking content and ideas. So I'd love to hear what is one of your most passionate or maybe it's controversial, I don't know, um, opinion about the state of leadership right now? Uh, <laughs> to boil it down into something that's simple to remember. Uh, I remember realizing somewhere middle, midway through my career at LinkedIn, you know, that 
it really it's the manager, the people manager that makes or breaks the employee experience. And I mean, we know that. We know that at an intellectual level. But I feel like this is the first time I felt it at a really instinctual gut level. It was visceral what kind of impact a great manager could have on you and how different it was than what a not so great manager left you feeling like. I then also started to realize managing is not an art, it's a skill. A lot of people think people are born great leaders or they're made great leaders. You know, people work to be great leaders. And so that then got me thinking, well, okay, so if it is a skill set, how can I codify it into a really simple framework? Because there's just so much out there on how to be a great manager that I, I can't even stand it. I can't even remember all of it. And so uh, earlier this year, I, I started to simplify all of that and distill it into a framework that I now call the 4G manager. And I'm talking about this framework because one of the G's in there, I think, is a really controversial one. And so I'm kind of just building my way to that part of the story. And so the four Gs are really, uh, the way I say it is, the four G manager helps their people do these four things. They help them glow. So that's G-L-O-W. They help them grow. That's G-R-O-W. They help them get things done. And they help them go their own way. And that fourth G, helping people go their own way, I think that is the most powerful and hence the most controversial uh, of all of those concepts. So if I were to just jump into each of those a little bit, right? Helping people glow is all about setting the foundations for psychological safety. It's showing care and support. And then it's about uh, both pinpointing and amplifying the implicit skills that that person has and turning them into explicit skills language so people understand exactly what their invisible superpowers are that they themselves take for granted. So that's kind of glow. Grow is... Uh, I'd say maybe there's some controversy in grow as well, because it can be a difficult one for managers to do. At the foundation of grow is providing constructive feedback, being willing to have those difficult conversations with your employees on what they need to do differently. I think up above that is what I call the willingness to create productive stretch. So put your people in that zone between their comfort zone and the danger zone at the very outside and let them let them play around there let them struggle just a little bit because that's how we build muscle grit resilience and to resist the urge to jump in too quickly and save them and then i i'd say that the the third element of the grow is career conversations how do you have regular career conversations so you can figure out what your people really want the third one that i talked about is get things done and this is where you not just know how to set boundaries priorities and unblock barriers for your people to get their work done. You also know the difference between when to coach, when to teach, and when to get alongside your people in the trenches and actually do the work. And the fourth one, which I think is the most controversial, is the willingness to let your people go their own way in their current role that could look like giving them the flexibility they need and giving them the autonomy they need to get work done their own way, so long as there's alignment on the outcomes. But the most controversial part of this is being willing to understand when your people have reached their full potential on your team and are no longer being challenged and when it is time for them to be moving on to something on a different team and, and for you to initiate that conversation instead of willing waiting for them to realize that that's what's happening. Because uh, I find that uh, we can either be empire builders who want to hold on to our people and hog talent or we can be talent magnets who can generously let our people move on to their next play, wherever it is right for them, wherever they will continue to grow. 
And I, I feel like wisdom lies in the ability to detach and let them move on when the time is right for them, not when the time is right for you. I also just want to be clear, I'm borrowing these terms from Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers. So credit where credit is due. But that to me is the most controversial part of the 4G framework and of leadership in general. It's so hard to do. And that's why it's controversial, right? Because especially when you do maybe recruit these people in and you spend time developing them and, um, you know, caring for their their future. And, and in turn, they just give you such a rewarding experience working with them. And it's it's hard to let them go, right? It's really hard. But um, it, is the, it is the selfless thing to do. And I love the, the term magnet because what I like to think about that is that when you let them go and they, you know, you give them the opportunity to shine in a different team or sometimes a different company, um, maybe they'll come back to you at some point or you'll come back to them. And I've seen that time and time in my career. I've been so grateful for that. Um, but but I, I just, I think it, it is controversial because it is difficult to do. It's so true. I've also noticed that magnetism plays out in another paid forward kind of way, which is that when you're the sort of manager that consistently puts people's interests above your own, word gets around as it does about both good and terrible managers when word gets around, even if that same person is not coming back to join your team in the future, there's going to be other people that are lining up to work for you because they know what a great experience they will have. And they know you will not get unduly attached to them uh, at the expense of their growth. So it, it works in really lovely, mysterious and karmic ways, so to speak. But it does work. And I have seen that in action. Yeah, I'll share one quick anecdote here. It was uh, during my time at, at Nielsen. And when I made the difficult choice to leave there. It was a, you know, a very thoughtful and drawn out process in a good way because I wanted to make sure everyone felt comfortable with it. But at the very end, one of the most senior leaders in that company, um, who I hadn't interacted with very much, but he kind of sent me a note on my last day and said, hey, Jess, the porch light will always be on for you. And I thought that was such a cool way to make me feel like, you know, I had a place to come that was a, you know, a welcoming and sort of safe place to come back to. And so I have stolen that statement and, and used it with quite a few people. And and, uh, and I still stay in touch with, with, with those people. So I think that that's a, a very passionate and good, passionate point of view to have. And so if you think about, you know, your hot take on the future of the talent uh, or the workforce um, consideration, what, what sort of your, your feelings on, on where things will go? What will we see in the future that we don't see today? Well, there's a short term and then there's a long term future. You know, in the short term future, uh, I think that talent is going to get its revenge on employers for just how terribly they are behaving right now when they have so much power in a hiring market. I'm seeing friends who are out there looking for new gigs that are being ghosted, that are getting just the vaguest of feedback, that are being put through rounds and rounds of interviews only to be told at the end that their experience is not a good fit, which, hey, did you not know that looking at the resume? about uh, two months ago. So I feel like employers are feeling really empowered right now to do this because they do have a lot of power because talent is in high supply and jobs are in low supply. That, that pendulum is going to swing at some point and talent is going to go to where there are great leaders and great employers and people are going to remember who treated them how. So I think that's the short term is the pendulum will swing back and talent will get their revenge to say it very dramatically. In the long term, uh, I remember I remember saying this on another podcast recently. <clears throat> Even today, as corporate America, we are very head-driven. 
we make a lot of decisions from our head. We look at the numbers. We're very rational. And um, we we both de-emphasize and I think a harsher word to use here is disrespect people who use their feelings really strongly in the workplace. But the empaths of the world have a really strong role to play because they are the canary in the coal mine of how our people are feeling before it shows up in your culture surveys. And I think that, I hope that in the mid to long term, we will have a greater appreciation for people who don't just lead from their head, but who know how really well to integrate their heart and their gut centers into their decision-making. So just a greater appreciation for feelings and and as a consequence for social, emotional intelligence. I, I think we're starting to see that with our children now. I hope we start to see it in the world of talent as well. Yeah, maybe the leaders will catch up with our children. That sounds like a good plan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, now we're going to turn to the final dig. This is all about you as a person. I know this is the part that stresses you out, and it shouldn't because (laughs) you really don't have to worry about it. Um, But here we're kind of going back to some of the more, you know, questions we ask uh, of people that are are leading innovation, and, uh, and you are one of those too. So what is the last product or service that you bought on Impulse? It was a little bracelet that I bought off a street uh, vendor. And the general theme of anything I'd buy on an impulse is is things that have to do with beauty or experience in my life. So a scented candle, a bracelet, a little roll-on perfumed oil. These are things that I would not buy rationally, but I only buy them on impulse. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's, It's all about building into your experience. I like that a lot. Um, what is a, a category or a brand or a certain product that you could rationalize any price point for? It's just that important in your life. Mm, I thought really long and hard about this one, Jess, because you did send me these questions ahead of time, which I so appreciate. I wasn't able to come up with anything that personally I would for myself pay any price point for, but I will tell you the thing that really stuck out for me. And uh, it, it is my parents are very old they live in India and I want them to come here often and to have a relationship with my son they want to come here more often but you know they're just really worn out by years of a very hard life and so I, I try to for the last few years I've been trying to pay business class for them to fly your business class and I yeah so on the airline of their choice that gets them directly from their home to mine I will pay any price it takes to bring them here comfortably because I want them to be able to look forward to that trip and to not dread the discomfort of an 18-hour long flight. Wow. No, see, and that speaks to the emotional need that you have. And so I think that that's a, a great example. Uh, I knew you'd come up with a good one. See, you're, you're good at this part. Um, this one I cannot wait to hear your point of view on. As you know, brands have different personalities. So is there a brand that you would really love to date, that you'd love to court you, and then a, a brand that you'd really love to marry? Uh, let's say one and the same. So before I jump to the answer, when I first came to the, the US, my then boyfriend, now husband, took me to a grocery store. And I walked to the store and I was just struck by what a lovely experience it was. It felt cozy. It felt homey and not too overwhelming and large. It also felt really bespoke, like everything was from local stores. Uh, and, and just the sheer number of hummus varieties on the shelf blew my mind. And I remember thinking, gosh, now when I go back to Singapore, which is where I lived at the time, this is what I'm going to miss the most. And even now that I've lived here for about 11 years, that's how I feel about this store. And it's Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is one of my happiest places. And I feel like if I ever moved back to Asia, that is the one thing that I would miss about the United States more than anything else. Trader Joe's is uh, fun, quirky, 
but also sensible, reliable. And I think it's all of those lovely qualities that I would appreciate in someone that I would want wooing me and marrying me, hopefully. So that's my answer for you as Trader Joe's. <laughs> I love it. I, there are so many ways you depicted that brand through that, right? It was the way it made you feel. It was cozy. But then the hummus assortment, I just, I love it. And that's a, yeah, that's, that's a great brand to have as both a, a boyfriend and a husband. So. So finally, we'd love to know what, what keeps you inspired at work? It must be hundreds of things, but what are some that you could boil it down to? When you see people grow, you know, when you see someone transform and reach what beyond what you thought was their highest potential, it is just so delightful to be part of that journey. Um, and so when I see people, especially on my team, who started somewhere and, you know, their confidence was shaken or they weren't quite sure if they could do this, and then you see them like a year later, when you put them in the right role, they're just shining. They're just blazing trails all over the place. And suddenly you're looking at them and going, oh my God, do you realize you've become basically the best version of yourself in this last year? To me, that is the most inspiring thing to see because it, it gives you faith that people can evolve. It proves neuroplasticity is real and you can see it live and in action. So I guess, yeah, seeing people grow and access their highest potential is what inspires me the most. Oh, that's excellent. So you are by definition a talent magnet. So congratulations for that. Uh, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I, like I said, I always learn a lot when we talk and you give me new things to think about, new things to kind of muddle on. And I, I really appreciate it. And it's been inspiring to hear about the framework you've developed and, and some of your, your points of view on uh, the, the future of the industry. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners here on Dig In. Thank you for having me, Jess. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Like what you heard? Share the inspiration or head to diginsights.com to learn more about what we do 